If you join me in Bible study today, as the sun is going down, we're ending the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's got a special name. It's called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. Now, I've had people argue with me. Rabbah doesn't mean great. Gadol means great. The answer is they both mean great, but in different ways. Gadol means great as in really large. Rabbah means great as in many. So the salvation of many is Hoshana Rabbah. And what is Hoshana Rabbah about? If we start in verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, great day, that's Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day. Of the feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, but you got to wait a minute, because i got to tell you what's going on. There's a specific place that happens. He's in the temple, by the altar, in a courtyard. And on the seventh day of Hoshana Rabbah, they go down to the pool of Siloam, from which we get a whole lot of messages. They bring up a pitcher of water, and they pour it out by the altar, and pray to God for the Mayim Chayim, the living water. What they mean is the rain that's going to bring in the crops and provide water for food and for people to drink and for food to grow. And he stands up as they're doing that. Normally nobody stands up and says something while they're doing that. But he says, ah, you got to understand. It says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You got to bet the crowd turned to him and looked to see if he's got a great big old pitcher of water with him, but he doesn't. So, what's he mean? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he says, you're pouring out water from the pool of Siloam, praying to God for the life-giving waters when you have the source of the life-giving waters here before you. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Hmm. There's more to this story that normally I would talk about tomorrow, and I probably will again because I'll forget I told you today. But keep a finger here and go back to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. Along with the pouring out of the water ceremony called the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, if you care, go to Jeremiah chapter 17. There's a reading that goes along with it. Start in verse 13. Again, Jeremiah 17, verse 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What did he just claim to be? He who believes in me as the scripture has said. What scripture has said? Jeremiah 17, 13. 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But in Jeremiah, it says the Lord, the hope of Israel, is the source of the living waters. What's he telling them he is? That he is the Lord from all eternity. Do they understand this yet? No, they won't understand until tomorrow. What happens tomorrow? Come back tomorrow. And we'll find out. Let's go back to John chapter 7. Yes, sir. What's interesting too? The chapter before John 7 and John 6, he called himself bread. The chapter before John 7 and 6, he called himself bread, lies in the bread of life. So he's, he's given all these analogies and the people are just... Why? He's given these all analogies, but what? Kind of like parables. What, why does he tell parables? Seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear unless they want to. The disciples would say, what do these mean? Teach us. The rest of people just said, well, I don't know what he said. Yeah. Unauthorized flyby. You're absolutely right. So back to John chapter 7, verse 40. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of what he just said, some people start putting two and two together. And other people had the new math, and they can't add two and two. So verse 40 says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. The prophet referring back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, well, let's turn back and look. Deuteronomy 18, what did Moses say? What's that? God will send a prophet like me. Yeah. And what happens if you won't hear him? Ooh. Yeah, so Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Now, this has to be from the tribes of Israel. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they spoke in his good, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. You see that? And he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But look at that verse, 18 phrase, will put my words in his mouth. Keeping a finger in John 7, go to John chapter 15. Or 14 is better. John 14 first. I'm trying to remember. I'm doing the short version. John 14. Let's start in verse 15, huh? John 14. Beginning verse 15. If you love me, come a what? Keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. See that and? That means if you will keep God's commandments, he will send the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. And if you go to verse 23, because people say, well, how do we know it's God's commandments we're talking about? Verse 23 of John 14 says, Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is what? Not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What did it say in Deuteronomy 18? And will put my words in his mouth. So in John 14, verse 24, Yeshua is saying, I am that prophet. Prophet just means a messenger, one who speaks for God. And he also said in Matthew chapter 17, let's turn back to Matthew 17, still keeping a finger in John chapter 7. Matthew chapter 17. I'm sorry? Matthew chapter 17. This happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. But look and see how prophetic it is. Verse 1 says, now after six days. Six days picture 6,000 years. What follows the 6,000 years? The day of the Lord. What happens to the day of the Lord? Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. Messiah returns. So after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother. On the words of what? Two or more witnesses, let all things be established. He takes three. Led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That's Ezekiel 43. He bears the glory of the Lord when he returns to establish the kingdom at the time of tabernacles. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, <laughs> talking with him. Sorry, I have to chuckle. I heard just today a preacher say, the two witnesses have to be Enoch and Elijah. They're right here. What are they called? Moses and Elijah. Verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three sukkahs, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. When do you build sukkahs? At Sukkot. Sukkot celebrates God dwelling amongst men, Emmanuel. Verse 5, While he was still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What are the next two words? Hear him. What did Deuteronomy 18 say? You'll hear him or you're going to face the consequences. I would call that a veil threat, but there's no veil. It's just a threat. So back to John 7. Therefore, many from the crowd, verse 40, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. That's what they mean. The one whom God sent to bear his words to the world. How is it like Moses? Moses came down and told people what God's commandments were. Messiah came to tell us what they mean. How the Pharisees and scribes had taught the people wrong and he was going to set the record straight. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. I know we'll finish John 7 in a minute. Or tomorrow. Matthew 5. I had questions about this just this week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We run into confusion... When we read the Bible as though it was written 
in the year 2000 in the United States in modern English. Eulis has been translated from Hebrew to Greek to English down through the years. So sometimes when you see a word in English and you run to the English Bible to, or the English dictionary to see what the word means, it's not the, the right word, it's not the right connotation that the Bible is trying to convey. And this is one of those. I'm rambling now. Let me get on to it. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. To destroy the law and the prophets, it's a Jewish idiom that means to teach it incorrectly. That's what the scribes and Pharisees have done. He didn't come to teach it wrong. So he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That word fulfill means to correct our understanding. It is the Greek word plerosai from the root word plerao. And it means to fill full our understanding, which means to correct our misunderstanding and make sure we understand it correctly. If you want to see a good place that this word is used, go to Romans 15, 19. But keep your finger in Matthew 5. I know you have more than two fingers. Romans chapter 15, verse 19. You're going to see the same word, but it's going to be translated quite differently. It's going to be translated much better in Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 19. Let me get over there myself. It's in the left-hand side of the right-hand page. If you have the same Bible I do. Verse 19, are we there? It says, in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and right about to Illyricum, I have fully preached. That's that same word. I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. Did he fulfill the gospel of Messiah such that it goes away? It's no longer relevant? To, no. But that's what this word, plerosai, means. I have fully preached. That's what Messiah came to do, was to fully preach it. Let's go back to Matthew 5, and verse 18 also uses the word fulfilled, but it's a different Greek word. It's got an entirely different meaning. Whereas if you just look at an English dictionary, you think, well, they're both fulfilled, they both have the same meaning, and that's where you can get confused. Verse 18 says, for assuredly, that's just the Hebrew word, amen. How many know that word, amen? It means it's really true. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Do heaven and earth pass away? Yes. And at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, have we gotten there yet? No. If you don't think I'm telling you the truth, stand up and jump up and down. You'll find out that the heavens and earth are still here. So to heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter. The word jot there refers to the yod. It looks like an apostrophe. It's the smallest Hebrew letter. Or one tittle, which is a piece of a letter. That if missing could cause you, say, to confuse the letter Dalit from the letter Resh. Will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This word fulfilled is Genitai. And it means until everything prophesied has been fulfilled. Which is when heavens and earth pass away. So that's called Hebrew parallelism. When heaven and earth pass away, then all is fulfilled. And Messiah says, till then, not the smallest letter from the law or the smallest piece of a letter from the law will have passed away. 
Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. So is the Lord telling us to stop keeping the commandments? Or to not only keep them, but to teach others to do so? And teach them correctly. And Matthew 28, 18, the great commission is to walk. I've heard at least three different preachers in the last week say it's to go out and make converts to Christianity. But let's go look. Matthew 28, 18. What were Messiah's words? Remember, he's telling us the words given to him from heaven. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. These are Messiah's own words from his own lips. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Only God has all authority in heaven and earth. What's he claiming to be? God. Go, therefore. You heard a preacher recently say, that's not a commandment. It's just a suggestion. Does it sound like a suggestion? It does not. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The word disciple means student. One who studies, one who learns. What are they supposed to study? Well, you make students of all the nations. The word nations means Gentiles. It's not talking about Jewish people. It's talking about taking the commandments of God to the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word name there is singular. There's one God. Verse 20 tells what you're teaching the students. Teaching them to observe, which means to do, all things that I have commanded. You and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what were the apostles supposed to teach the Gentiles who would listen? All of the commandments of God. Is that consistent or inconsistent with Deuteronomy? Let's turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31 tells something that's supposed to happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. Every seven years. Just like there are six days in a week and the seventh day is the Sabbath, there are six years in a row and the seventh is the Sabbath year. It was failure to keep that seventh year that caused Israel to go into captivity for 70 years into Babylon. It's called the Sabbath year. Shemitah is that seventh year. Okay. Yep, that's the Sabbath year. And then every 50th year is the Yovel, that's the Jubilee. Jubilee. Yep. So look at verse 10 of Deuteronomy 31. And Moses commanded them, saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time, what appointed time? These are tabernacles. In the year of release, that's the Shemitah, the Sabbath year. At the Feast of Tabernacles. See, we didn't have to guess, he told us. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law, which means the book of Deuteronomy. It's got all the commandments you and I need to do. Before all Israel in their hearing. Before whom? All Israel. Now let's read and see who all Israel refers to. Verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, 
and the stranger. Who's the stranger? That's the Gentile who wants to worship God. Who is within your gates is called the Ger HaSha'ar. That they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. So in, in Deuteronomy 31, all the Gentiles who wanted to worship God would go up to Jerusalem and hear the reading of the entire book of Deuteronomy so they would know the commandments. In Matthew 28, God sends the apostles out into the world so that those Gentiles who didn't know to come can learn the commandments of God and do them. Is that another way of saying that commandments are abolished, don't do them? Or is it just the opposite? So let's go back to John chapter 7. We're still just in our introduction to tonight. So in verse 40, many say, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. Is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18 the Messiah? Yes, it is. So some only see he's the prophet and others see more and go, ah, oh, I understand now. This is the Messiah, the promised one. What does the word Messiah mean? Mashiach means the anointed one. Every prophet, priest, and king in Israel was anointed with olive oil because all of them are supposed to carry out some of the functions of Messiah. Messiah will rule, he'll reign, he is the high priest. He's prophet, priest, and king. So some said, he's just a prophet. Others said, no, this is the Messiah. Answer. Yes. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Correct. Which is a symbol, olive oil becomes a symbol. Right. The, the anointing with oil is a picture of being anointed with the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by God with the Holy but Spirit. this also is a not a prediction, whatever the word would be, of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Or foreshadowing, maybe. A foreshadowing is the word I want. A type. Mm -hmm. So he was anointed, and people will say, well, I was even anointed. But he was anointed. He was. Yep. He is the fulfillment of the anointing. Right. Yep. And priest. and priest. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, he is our great high priest. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which means not a priest in the earthly temple, but a priest in the heavenly temple. So, but some said, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? That's like people up in Boston saying he comes out of Georgia. That's what they mean. In Jerusalem, you had the great schools like the school of Gamaliel where Paul studied. The Galilee, that was the area of the Amha'aretz, which means the common people, the people of the land. North Georgia. Well, yeah, like us here in North Georgia. When I, I was born in Georgia, but I started school up in Ohio because my father went up to work in the rubber shops. And one of the first things my teacher said is, you got a southern accent, you must be stupid. <laughs> so they said, if you want people to think you're not stupid, you've got to lose the accent. This is what they were thinking about the folks in the Galilee. They talked different. They didn't have great schools of rabbis up there. But they had good hearts. 
Messiah only went to Jerusalem at the festival time when everybody was required to go. The rest of the time he was up in Galilee with the common people, those with open hearts who wanted to hear. The folks down in Galilee, he thought, they're so self-righteous, they don't think they need a Savior. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 41, others said, this is the Messiah, but some said, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David, does it? Yes. How does Matthew chapter 1 begin? He's the son of David. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, you see names and genealogies. It's not a complete genealogy. It's three sets of 14 names. Unless you're reading your English Bible, in which case there's a name missing because it's from the Greek. The Hebrew is older and has all 14 names. But why 14, 14, and 14? In Hebrew, the letters are also the numbers. So David or David is Dalit, Vav, Dalit. What's a Dalit worth? Four. A Vav? Six. What's six and four? Ten. And another Dalit, which is another four, it's 14. So by 14, 14, and 14, the Lord is saying David, David, David. So yes, the scripture does say the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was. But they said he's from Nazareth in the Galilee. But where was he born? Born in Bethlehem. Did the prophet say he'd be born in Bethlehem? Turn back to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 4 is all about Messiah in his kingdom. But Micah chapter 5 is about his birth. Micah chapter 5. Verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops. You're not there yet. Let me slow down. Oh, I got a question out here and go to meeting land. Let me see what it is. A lot of rabbis still insist that Shem was Melchizedek. Yes, that's right. A lot of them do. Problem with that is it tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek has no mother, no father, no genealogy, no beginning, and no end. And Shem has all that. Do you know who Shem's father was? Noah. Do you know when he lived and when he died? Yep. So while they may believe that Shem is Melchizedek, they are incorrect. <laughs> Can rabbis be wrong? Yes. yes, rabbis are people. Believe it or not, everybody can be wrong. But God will always be right. So, Micah chapter 5. We'll skip to verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata. Why does it say Bethlehem Ephrata? Because there's two Bethlehems in Israel. One's in the north and one's down there, about five miles or so from Jerusalem. That's Ephrata. Ephrata means fruitful. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So yes, they're right. Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, in Ephrata. Where was he born? Bethlehem of Ephrata. God got another one right. So back to John chapter 7, verse 43. So, so there was a division among the people because of him. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he's the Messiah. 
And others say, not possible. He didn't come from the right town. They're wrong. But you know what? Sometimes it's hard to change people's mind when they think they're right. So there's a division among the people because of him. Verse 44, now some of them wanted to take him. By take him, they don't mean to lunch. They mean to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. Why? What's that? Wasn't his time. You know what? When God says there's a set time, things happen at a set time. You're right. Verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officer said, no man ever spoke like this man. Yeah. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Why are they so hot against Messiah? He's a threat to their power. He called them, you seed of vipers, right? You sons of the devil. He showed them a mirror. Yeah, and they didn't like it. I'm sorry? Where is that in the scripture? Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I always say what? If I say something, make me prove it. Just didn't expect you really to. No. <laughs> Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that is a Gentile, to convert to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. What did he just call him? Devils. Yeah, sons of the devil. What's that? And in verse 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? When he calls them hypocrites in verse 15, it's not been very long since Matthew 15 when he explained that. Go to Matthew 15, you'll see why he calls them hypocrites. Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. When I was growing up in church, I always heard that Jesus hated the scribes and Pharisees because they kept God's commandments. But that's not what the Bible says. Yes, Daniel. This, what you're about to read, is just a continuation of what he said in Matthew 5. What I'm about to read is a continuation of what he said in Matthew 5. Because he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means entertain Yep. Keep a finger here in Matthew 15. Go back to Matthew 5 because Daniel's right. I stopped a verse short of the introduction to the topic. After verse 19 which said, Whoever does and teaches the commandments of God shall be called great in the heaven. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's he telling the scribes and Pharisees? They're not on the right road. They're missing the boat. They're on that broad road. They think they're on the road to heaven and they're not. Why? Well, Matthew chapter 15 explains what he means. 
In fact, it hasn't been more than a couple of weeks since I heard a preacher read that verse 20 and say that it's because they were keeping God's commandments that they won't enter the kingdom of heaven, that no one who keeps God's commandments can enter the kingdom of heaven. To which I said, man, you need to read more of the Bible than that verse. But in Matthew 15, verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Messiah's disciples were not breaking God's commandments. And the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't have cared if they were. Their concern is, why are you not keeping our man-made commandments? That's the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That is the ceremony called netilat yadayim, which means the washing of the hands. And it's a ceremonial thing where you've got a two-handle cup. You put water in it, you pour water over one hand, grab the other handle, pour water over the other hand. It's not to get them clean. It's a ceremonial thing commanded by the scribes and Pharisees, not by God. And you know, Wayne, yes. in the prayer of the Netzvah Yedayim, it says, you know, Blessed art thou, Lord of God, King of the universe, who commands us to wash our hands. Yes. The blessing over the hand washing called Netzvah Yedayim, which is man-made, is blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by the commandments and commands us to wash our hands in this particular way. So they say because they say it has to be done, it's as if God told you to. Does that sound like the Pope who yes. says, if I tell you to do something, you've got to consider it came from God? They didn't do anything but adapt the ways of Christ. Pharisees. But however, back to verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. In other words, you set aside the commandments of God and put man-made commandments in his place. And he gives an example. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and you curse his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his mother or father, Whatever profits you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. In other words, we are required to keep our parents fed in their old age. They fed us when we were young. We feed them when they get old and can't work anymore. And the scribes and Pharisees said, hey, as long as you're going to give the money to me, let them starve. It says, thus you made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They're saying, Lord, Lord. And they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. What's that mean, their heart is far from me? They do not love me. But in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what did Messiah say? If your worship of God is based upon man-made commandments and not the commandments of God. What do you call it? Vain, which means empty. Worthless. Also ties back right back to Matthew 5 where it said, don't expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because this is the righteousness of the Pharisees. In the 4th century, the Catholic Church just substituted themselves for the scribes and Pharisees. And said, you do what we tell you and we'll let you into heaven. 
You know, I've heard all my life, when you get to heaven, St. Peter's going to be at the gate deciding if you can get in or not. Where's that in the Bible? Nowhere. Nowhere. Of course not. Go back to John chapter 7. We're almost done with the introduction to tonight. It's not quite time to go home, so let's finish. John chapter 7. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? What they're saying is, are you deceived like the common, uneducated, irrelevant people? And their proof that you're deceived is verse 48. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Meaning, if we don't believe in him, you can't believe in him. Which takes me back 20 years to a full-page ad in the New York Times. I think I might still have it at home. And there weren't very many words on it, but one of the rabbis was really fed up with the, oh, shall we say, Messianic Jews. And he said, why don't Jews believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Because our forefathers rejected him, Therefore, we don't need to even consider the question. So because the Pharisees cried, crucify him, crucify him, the rabbi said, we today don't even need to ask, is he the Messiah or not? If he had been, the Pharisees would have believed him. Verse 49, but this crowd does not know But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Meaning that if they knew what the law was, they wouldn't believe in him. But you know what? What does the law do? The law is a guide to him. It points to him. Uh, Nicodemus, when it came to Yeshua by night, being one of them, he's part of the Sanhedrin, said to them, How many of you think the Sanhedrin vote to crucify Messiah was unanimous? It wasn't. If a unanimous guilty verdict was given at any trial of Sanhedrin, the person was set free. Because the only way to get a 100% guilty vote is something under the table. Something underhanded. So Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. He voted no. Said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And they turn on one of their own. Says the answer and said to him, are you also from Galilee? What are they asking him? Are you you stupid too? Yeah. Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Is that true? There's all kinds of prophets who come out of Galilee. They're showing their ignorance of the scriptures. As they're saying, we're so smart. smart. We know the law so well. If he was Messiah, we'd know. Yeah, they need to study more. It says, but everyone went to his own house. And that's where we'll pick up tomorrow on the Feast of Tabernacles. But today, let's turn back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. We are in chapter 10. Oh, that's right. We had that discussion about Christmas tree or not Christmas tree last week. That's why we only got a few verses. Because that's always a big controversy. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Do we do verse 7 or do we not do verse 7? I have a feeling we may not have gotten all the way through verse 7. So let's just start there for a running start anyway. I was going to start in verse 8, but we'll just roll it back to verse 7. Partially because we sang Mika tonight. Mika Mocha Baili Madanai means who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Verse 7 says, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Means what nation should not fear God? Which nation should not worship God? Which nation should not serve God? The answer to that is none of them, right? They all should serve God. They all should worship God. He says, for this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. None like you. Hmm. King of the nations. So let's pick up now with verse 8. But. What is, why but? What does but indicate? Contradiction. They all should, but they don't. Right? Yeah. Which is often the case. He said the but's not actually in the Hebrew. They just put it in there for dramatic effect. But they are all together. Talking about the Gentiles. Those who worship idols. Not talking about the Ger HaShaar that have come into Israel to worship the true and living God. But those who reject God. Who do not fear God. Serve God. But instead serve and worship the idols. For they are all together dull hearted and foolish. Fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. There is no God. Huh. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Worthless doctrine. That means a vain teaching. You know what I put down as the first cross-reference? Matthew chapter 15. We just read it. About the hypocrites who in vain worship God, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. Teaching his doctrine and commandments of men is, in God's eyes, idolatry. Why in the world would he consider that idolatry? Not only do you put something before God, but you obey someone other than God. So, yeah, your way was right, too. But look at Romans 6.16. 6, These all tie together. In verse 15, I've got to deal with verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. That's 1 John 3, 4. Lawlessness is breaking God's commandments. So sin is breaking God's commandment. That's what it means. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? There are several different Greek words translated as under in these chapters. Even in the book of Romans. This one is hupo. Spelled H-Y-P-O but pronounced hupo. 
And it means we are not saved through keeping commandments in the law. You and I all know that, right? We're saved what? By faith. So we're not saved by keeping the law, but we're saved by grace. That's what that verse is telling us. So he says, shall we continue in sin because we're not saved by the law, but saved by grace? His answer is certainly not. He says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey, you are that one servant or slave whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So if God said, oh, for instance, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and the Catholic Church in the fourth century said, don't keep Sabbath, you must keep Sunday because we tell you to, and you obey the Catholic Church instead of God, what if you made the Catholic Church? You've made them the idol. They're the ones you're serving. It says, whether of sin leading to death. So if they teach you to break God's commandments, that's putting you on the road to death. Or of obedience, that's obedience to God's commandments leading to righteousness. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, that is before you got saved. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So the opposite of lawlessness is righteousness. Righteousness for holiness. And what does the scripture say? Without holiness, no one will see God. So God's trying very hard to get us to understand that if you want to spend eternity with the Lord our God rather than in the lake of fire, salvation is only by faith. But how do you know if your faith is real? If your faith is real, then you will keep his commandments. John 14, 15, we looked at, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, 2 and 3, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Go to, yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Normally when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, everybody says, oh, verse 14. But nope, that's not why. We'll be in a minute, but first we have to do verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 and 2. We then... As workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That is to do you no good. He's talking about those who claim to be saved by faith and then walk in sin. He says that's receiving the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now skip over to verse 14 and go down through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? That means they're opposites. Righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness and vice versa. What did Messiah say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23? He's going to say to those who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord is Messiah with Belial? Messiah the Savior, Belial, Satan. Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And, agree and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's not talking about the building in Jerusalem. It says, for you are the temple of the living God. A temple is where God dwells. How does God dwell in you? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in your heart? That's what he's talking about. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Those words were written to Israel. Paul says it, it applies every bit as much to a Gentile believer as to the Jewish believer. And verse 17 begins with, Therefore, because God will dwell in your heart if you're saved by faith, therefore come out from among them, from the lawless, from the unbelievers, etc., and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch. Do not cling to what is unclean. How do you know what's unclean? You read Leviticus 11. Or it's repeated in Deuteronomy. Are pigs clean or unclean? Are shrimp clean or unclean? How long have they been unclean? Since creation. Yes, swordfish is unclean too. Because it has fins but not scales. Swordfish has skin, like sharks, like dolphins. How many eat dolphins? Don't do that. Okay. Aren't they animals to the fish? Yeah. Aren't they animals to the fish? It says things that dwell in the water must have fins and scales in order to be edible. No, it doesn't say fish. That's why. Lobsters and shrimp are unclean. They dwell in the water, but they don't have fins and scales. Yeah. So do not touch what is unclean, but it doesn't stop there. It tells why. And, which means, here's why. I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So if you say, no, no, I'm going to eat pigs. I don't care what God says. Does he promise still to be your father? He doesn't. So chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, because we have this promise from God, if we will avoid these things, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So if you're eating those things, does God consider you holy? Let's go back and look in Leviticus chapter 11. He uses a different word entirely. Leviticus chapter 11. In the 4th century, the Catholic Church said, no, 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 you've got to eat pigs, you've got to eat shrimps, you've got to eat lobster to show that you're not following God's commandments. Yeah, okay, I'm not doing that. Leviticus 11. Um, to answer Dr. Bob, look at verse 12. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales. So, it doesn't use the word fish. Whatever's in the water. So that means you can't eat whale either. Can't eat whale either. Never thought about it. All those Eskimos are in big trouble. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
Verse 43. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled with them. If you're eating these unclean animals, God says you are abominable to him. So verse 44 goes on to reinforce that, to say, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. What does it mean to consecrate? Set yourself yourself apart to God through following his commandments. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves, meaning make yourself unclean, with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Yes, sir. They're trying to make us eat bugs, and I say no. Why do they want everybody to break God's commandments? Just read Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Yep. But if these words, be holy for I am holy, sound familiar, are they in the New Testament? Yeah, they're in 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's quoting from Leviticus 11. It's the same Peter who had the vision next chapter 10, and he did not interpret that to say, I can eat pigs. He said, God has shown me I should not call any man common or unclean. And you know, with Peter being a rabbi, Peter being a rabbi, he's going to throw, gonna gonna throw that phrase out that verse. What are the disciples supposed to do? Put it in context. 1 Peter chapter 1. Start in verse 13 and go through verse 16. Therefore, gird up. Oops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. I got to quit getting so far ahead. (coughs) First Peter chapter (coughs) one, starting verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins (coughs) of your mind. And be sober. The word sober means right-minded. Get your mind right with God. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as what? Obedient children. Obedient children means children who obey the Father. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, meaning before you got saved, when you didn't know what else to do anyway. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So what did Peter say? Go eat pigs? No, he did not. I think he's telling them to put down the pork chop. That could be one thing. Yeah. One thing that's always amazed me is people say, it says in Acts 10, I can eat a pig. Find me somebody in the New Testament, anybody who's eaten a pig. You can't find anybody. None of the apostles, none of the believers. What's that? You just see demons being cast into pigs, is what you see. You see demons being cast into pigs. Yes, Messiah made the first deviled ham, that's true. (laughs) But why do you think he cast the demons into pigs and not into lambs? And the pigs were used for pagan sacrifices too. Yep. 
Can you sacrifice an unclean animal to God? No, no, no. And where in the Bible do we first learn there's a difference between the clean animals and the unclean? That's all the way back in Genesis chapter 7. They didn't sell pork in, the, in Jerusalem. No. When they're talking about meat offered idols being sold, in, they're even talking about lamb and stuff like that. Right. They're not, I mean, they're not talking about pigs when they're talking about food sacrificed to idols in Jerusalem. Killing camels and pigs and horses to sell. You're right. It did not happen. Genesis 7, verse 2. They had had a revolution. I mean, it wouldn't have been 130 AD when they had the uprising or whatever it was. Oh, it'd been a lot sooner than that. Yeah. The very day. Yeah, right. Verse 2 is long before there are any Jewish people in the world. Animals being clean or unclean has nothing to do with Judaism or with Jews. First. I'm about to read it. Oh, good. Genesis chapter 7, <laughs> verse 2. As a general rule, anytime I ask Christians how many animals are each kind of take in the ark, they probably say two. And I say no, and they go, what do you mean no? I say, let's turn back and look in the Bible. Verse 2 says, you shall take with you seven each. It's actually seven pairs. The Hebrew says, sheva, sheva, ishva, ishto. So seven males and seven females. Mating pairs, that's why they're described as ish and ishto, which literally means a man and his wife. So breeding pairs. Take with you seven breeding pairs of every clean animal, a male and his female. Two each, which is actually one pair of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Why do they only take one pair of unclean animals? Because A, they can't sacrifice them to God, and B, they can't eat them. And they know that. There's nowhere where Noah says, what do you mean clean versus unclean, does he? They weren't allowed to eat meat before coming off the ark anyhow. Right. So there was not going to be any pigs eaten in Noah's day. Of course, once we get to Noah's grandson, that's a whole other matter. Okay. But back to Jeremiah. We still have a few minutes. We can get to another verse. Verse 9. What's that? We still have 35 minutes. Wow, how about that? <laughs> well, 34 now. <laughs> the clock keeps ticking. Verse 9, silver is beaten into plates. It means to be made into idols. Silver is very valuable. It's worth lots of stuff. And yet, they beat it into idols. It's brought from Tarshish. Tarshish is all the way over where Spain and England are. That's a long way to bring metal. Just to make it into an idol. And gold from Ufaz. The work of the craftsman and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They're referring to the idols. Blue and purple cloth was very expensive. The people couldn't afford it for their bodies, but they bought it for their idols. They dressed their idols? They dressed their idols. Like we dress our dolls. Yeah says they're all the work of skillful men. What did they what were they called in verse eight? Dull hearted and foolish. So they may not have food to feed their families, but they're gonna make idols and put fancy clothes on them. And verse ten says, but 
but but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. So what are these idols going to do? Not a blooming thing, but fall down, right. She's talking about Dagon when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to the Temple of Dagon. Dagon kept falling down every night, and they put him back up, and the next night he fall down again. Next morning he set him back up, finally fell down and broke. And then God gave them all hemorrhoids, and they gave the Ark of the Covenant back. But that's another story for another day. But we're not through verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. See how the word Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav -Hey, those four Hebrew letters. If you don't know what they look like, come up at the end and I'll draw them for you. But it's a name that means, like Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that God will be whom he will be. If you are his loving child, he is a loving father beyond anything you can imagine. The kind where the Bible says he would never give a child a fish, no, a serpent if he asked for a fish, or a rock if he asked for bread. But what about to his enemies? He is a wrathful judge. So verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. When it says the true God, what does that mean? The. The only, the only one. There's a difference in biblical Hebrew between a and the. He is the only true and living God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. Who's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem as king? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. The Lord is Yeshua. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Who's looking at the Hebrew? What is that word for indignation? Za'am. Z-A apostrophe A-M. Za'am. That's the tribulation period. Yes, Daniel. And something else too in verse 10. Something else too in verse 10? The first line that says, the Lord is the true God. When it says, the Lord is the true God. True is not an adjective, it's M-N, it's true. So it should say, the Lord is the God of truth. Yes, very good. The Lord is the God of truth, is the way it should read, which is really significant because the word truth, if you look at Psalm 119, verse 142, what is truth? It's Torah. Torah is truth. So you could say he's the God of the Torah. The Lord is the God of truth. The God of truth. Yeah, the word truth is not an adjective truth. It's a noun truth. Elohim amet. So in our translations, they keep putting words that are nouns as if they are adjectives. Like the Lord Jesus. It's actually a noun, meaning truth, not truth. Yep. Elohim amet is a word pair, the God of truth. The God of truth. Okay, now we've got lots of cross-references to drive home these points. Psalm 38, verse 3. Psalm 38, verse 3. Psalm 38, verse 3. Hmm. How does this relate? Let's see. 
There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Can God be a wrathful judge? Does God know how to, let's say, give a woodshed experience? He most certainly does. Go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. While you're turning, just think of Romans 6, 1 and 2. Paul says, what then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? Mage anoint, oh God forbid. Why does he say that? Because if you continue in sin, you're going to get God's wrath. Yep, about as far from the truth as you can go. Psalm 69, verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. David wrote this about whom? About those who turn away from God. The one who don't want to hear him. Mm. Psalm 78 verse 47. Psalm 78, verse 47. Yep, if I get going too fast, slow me down. Psalm 78, verse 47 says, He just, well, let's even back up to verse 44. He turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave, and it goes on and on. What is it? Verse 49, he cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble. By sending angels of destruction among them. Does this sound like the God of love? God is a God of love for his children. To those who turn away from him. Well, let's go to Isaiah 26. He gave their life over to the plague. Did we just have a plague? You know what? There's another one on the way. We are going to Isaiah chapter 26 to a scripture that's about the rapture and the resurrection. And how God distinguishes between his children and his enemies. Isaiah 26 starting in verse 20. I may as well start in 19. Why not? Your dead shall live. How do dead people live again? That's resurrection. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Who's my? That's the prophet Isaiah. Somebody in here recently gave me a end times prophecy printout from a great prophecy teacher who says that the rapture and the resurrection only Christians can go. Jews can't go. They've got to wait until after the seven-year tribulation period to be resurrected from their graves 
from of old. What does Isaiah say? When that trumpet sounds, I'm going. Together my dead bodies shall arise, awake and sing, as in Revelation 5. You who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers. That word chamber is chadar, which means a wedding chamber. That's where the bridegroom and the bride spend seven days together. So, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you, just like God shut the door to the ark. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation, the za'am, is passed. So where will God's people be, living or dead, having been resurrected, while the tribulation period is going on on earth? They will be in the bridal chamber. Messiah said in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. But my Bible has the last verse says, well, it's really not mansions. It's the bridal chambers. And where's God's house? It's in heaven. So the rapture and resurrected believers will be caught up to heaven, will enter the bridal chamber, the door will be shut, and for seven years while the tribulation period is being poured out on earth, we will be in the bridal chamber with the bridegroom. What happens once the seven years are over? Look at verse 21. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. That's in Joel chapter 2. He comes out of the bridal chamber. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That word iniquity is actually lawlessness. Lawlessness. Antinomianism. Those who break the commandments of God are going to be punished. It says the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 66 which is another end times prophecy. This one's about the return of the Lord for Armageddon and to establish his kingdom. First, I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, see how the word Lord spelled there, so that tetragrammaton again, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh means I will be whom I will be. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles, what? At my word. Verses 14 to 17 talk about the difference between how God will treat his servants from his enemies. And notice there's only the two categories. If you are his child, you will be his servant. Verse 14, when you see this, that is God defending Jerusalem, your heart will rejoice. And your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, his blessings, shall be known to his servants. In his indignation, there's that za'am, the wrath of God being poured out to his enemies. Do you want the blessing or do you want the wrath? If you want the blessing, 
be his servant. If you want the wrath, be his enemy. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh, those are piggies, and the abomination, that's all those things in Leviticus chapter 11 that God said, thou shalt not ever eat. And the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. The Lord's going to slay them. If you're eating a ham sandwich, you're going to die. Now somebody this week asked me a good question. Where in Leviticus 11 does it say we can't ever eat them? So let's turn back to Leviticus 11. And let me say, they didn't translate it like that into English, but the Hebrew jumps off the page. Right. Right. So let's start with Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. And this same concept will be repeated over and over in the book of Leviticus with the same words. Leviticus 11, 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, that's including the mixed multitude, saying, meaning don't change a word, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat. Those words shall not eat are in Hebrew, lotochlu. Lotochlu means not ever. If he meant this is a temporary prohibition because you don't have refrigerators in the desert. It would be altochlu. It would be different words. Lotochlu means not now and not ever. Verse 4, nevertheless you shall not eat. Lotochlu, not ever. In verse 8, their flesh you shall not eat. Lotochlu. That's not ever. And of course, verse 7 right before it says, Thou shalt not ever eat it is the swine. Though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. What does Job 14.4 say? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? No one. If God created it as an unclean thing, it's always going to be an unclean thing. That was Job 14.4. Let's turn and look, since you asked, Job 14.4. It's either one you've not heard before or one you didn't have in the notes right in front of you. One or the other. Look at the book of Job 14.4. Job looks kind of like Job, but it's not. It's Job. Once you get to the book of Esther, you're getting close. Job 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Answer, no one. What if God suddenly declared pigs to be clean? 
after God said, Thou shalt not ever eat it. He would be breaking his word, right? He wouldn't be God. What does Psalm 89.34 say? My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So if he said they're unclean, and he did. He says, if you're eating it, when I return, I'm going to kill you. That was enough for me to go, I ain't eating it no more. Let's go back to Jeremiah. We're still in chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord... Like I said, is the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh. I want you to go to Luke chapter 24, verse 3. Luke 24, verse 3. Somebody out there is going to say, but Wayne, that's in the New Testament. And you're right, it is. How about that? Verse 3, then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Yeshua. See how it says in English there, Lord Jesus? It makes Lord look like an adjective. And it's not in Luke 24, 3. That's a noun. Trying to tell us Yeshua is the Lord, the same Lord that we're seeing back there all throughout the Old Testament. If this was in the Old Testament, it would be all caps, yeah? Let's go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. So it might be a rhetorical question. Go ahead. Do I think it was deliberate that they lowercase it? Absolutely, I do. I hope I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong... I'm sorry, Lord, but yeah, I think they were trying to mislead people. But you know, I've noticed too, when they, when they quote scripture from the Old Testament. When they quote scripture from the Old Testament to the New. They do use all caps. They do use all caps sometimes. Yeah, but when they're talking about Yeshua, they never use all caps. When they're talking about Yeshua, they never use the caps. Yeah. And there are different words in the New Testament for Lord. For when they're referring to Lord is in the Tetragrammaton and when they're not. The Greek's a little different. But they translate them all as Lord in the New Testament. So here's, enough, here's an example. Romans 4.8. Here's an example. Romans 4.8. Let's turn back to Romans 4.8 to see Daniel's example. Romans 4.8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And you see how Lord is spelled with the capital letters. And then look at Romans 5.1. Where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. And they use lowercase. Yep. If there's an option that you can put a doubt, they put the doubt. Yeah. Go to Revelation 22, verse 6. I just want to compare this with Luke 24, 3 that we looked at a minute ago. Revelation 22, 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And the Lord God, it looks like Lord is an adjective. 
but it's not. They're both nouns, just like when in Luke 24, 3, they said the Lord Jesus. They were both nouns. Let's go to John 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, amongst us. When was he born? When was Messiah born in the flesh? At tabernacles. And we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God in heaven is a spirit. You can't feed a spirit. You can't nail a spirit to a tree. You can't kill a spirit. So God had to take on a body of flesh and blood. Let's go to John chapter 20. John 1.23 is another example of the Old Testament being quoted where they put the Lord in caps. Yep. In one case they'll use kurio in the Greek and the other kurios in the Greek. Hmm. John 20 verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, him being Yeshua, the Messiah, after his resurrection, my Lord and my God. Does, the, does Yeshua rebuke him and say, don't call me Lord, don't call me God? No. Yeshua said to him, Thomas, because you see me, you have believed. Believed what? That he's both Lord and God. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Pasteo. Believed. That's faith. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1. I've had a lot of questions this last week saying, you don't really think Yeshua is God, do you? My answer is, yes, I do. That's what my Bible says. In fact, one of the apostles said, show us the Father. And what did Messiah say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you ask, show me the Father? Yeah, that's what he did first. Yeah. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. Simon, which in Hebrew is Shimon, it means hearing. And Peter's from the Greek Petros, which means a pebble. A bondservant. A bondservant is one who has been a slave, has been set free, but continues to serve out of love. An apostle, that's a sheliach in Hebrew, a sent one, one sent out to take the gospel to the world of Yeshua Messiah. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. What does Peter call Yeshua? Our God and Savior. 
John chapter 10. I love John. The apostle John wrote 30 years after all the other apostles had died. And he wrote the book of John for this reason. People were starting to say, well, you know, Yeshua, he was a good man. He was a Jewish man. He might even have been a prophet. But I won't go any further than that. So John records eight miracles in the book of John that you don't find in the others. And it's to say, Yeshua is not just a man, not just a Jew, not just a prophet. He is God incarnate because only God could do these things. He was actually refuting the Gnosticism um, very strongly. If you go through the whole book of John, the concepts he puts out just run head on into the concepts they were trying to teach the people. Yep. There's a big Gnosticism had been around for a long time. Yeah, Paul did that too. The book of Colossians is all about how Messiah defeated Gnosticism. And why do you want to turn away from the things that teach about Messiah to go back to Gnostic principles that had no value? That's what Colossians 2 is all about. The people think, say, don't keep the feasts and festivals. It's just the opposite. John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. Verse 30 says, I and my Father are one. I had people just this week that say, well, that doesn't mean they're one. It means they think alike. They're like-minded. But look what happens. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Would they stone him for saying, hey, we think alike? No. Yeshua answered them, many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood what he said, what he said, I and my Father are one. He said, I'm God, incarnate, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Em means with, Manu means us, Ale is God, God who is with us. Where does it say Messiah will be called Emmanuel? What's that? Yeah, you go back to Isaiah 7. That's where it starts. And then it's, it's quoted in the New Testament. But that's what it means. John 14, verses 7 and 9. John 14. There's only one God. And he's the God of all people. John 14, starting verse 6. Yeshua said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Shua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and that you have not known me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Let's go back to Jeremiah. I know you guys bear the brunt of all the questions I get asked during the week. Because I figure people are going to ask you too. Verse 11, Jeremiah 11, 11, not Jeremiah 22. You can't add them together. It doesn't work that way. When it says at the end of verse 10, the nations will not be able to endure his indignation, just read the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 19. There's God pouring out his wrath during the tribulation period. Verse 11, thus you shall say to them, to them who? To the unbelievers, to those who choose to worship someone else. In the tribulation period, who are they worshiping? The Antichrist, false messiah, beast of Revelation 13, Satan's the power behind him. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. In other words, tell them, that in the tribulation period, when God pours out his wrath, your poor little idols are going to vanish. They're going to die. They're going to be destroyed. What does Satan want? I mentioned a minute ago, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. I saw people write it down in their notes with a curious look. Let's just go look at it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. It tells us what the purpose is of Satan and the false messiah that he sends. False messiah is the emissary for Satan. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. This is what Satan has wanted from the Garden of Eden forward. Verse 25 says, He, that's the Antichrist, false messiah, or beast of Revelation 13, whichever term you like, shall speak pompous words against the Most High. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Boy, that's all over Revelation. And shall intend to, meaning try to, change the times. That's the appointed times of God. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, and feast of tabernacles. And the law, the Torah. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, which is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. But Satan's whole purpose is to keep us from keeping God's commandments. Was that his purpose in the Garden of Eden? God said, don't eat it. And the serpent said, eat it, eat it, eat it. Good for Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians 2. The mystery of lawlessness is what? Yes, from the beginning, it's already at work. You don't have to wait for the tribulation period. This has been Satan's plan from the beginning. And you know, when you, we were talking tonight about how the scribes and Pharisees were teaching the man-made doctrine. How the scribes and Pharisees were teaching the man-made doctrine. Why does, Satan, why does Messiah call them the sons of Satan? Because because that mystery of lawlessness. They're teaching people to break God's commandments. He calls them the sons of Satan. In that same mystery of lawlessness, in the 4th century, you find the Pope said, don't keep Passover, don't keep Shabbat, you have to eat pigs, etc. So the same 
breaking of God's commandments that is the mystery of lawlessness has been from the beginning. In the book of Revelation, they refer to that doctrine, go to Revelation 2, as the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Their doctrine was called antinomianism, that is, do not keep God's laws. Nicolaitanism. It's antinomianism is the doctrine. Anti, A-N-T-I, nomianism. Anti means against, nomos is the law. So in Revelation 2.6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So the Nicolaitans were teaching people that, hey, the law has been fulfilled. It's not for us to keep. And God says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I hate their doctrine. What does God expect of us? That's in Revelation 14, 12. Yep. In the Bible, in the New Testament, you see the word Christian three times. Always used by outsiders in a demeaning manner. The believers refer to themselves as the saints. How many times? Lots. Lots of times. 60 times easy. And in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 as well as chapter 12 verse 17. It says from Revelation 14 12. Here's the patience of the saints. The word saints there is the Greek word hagios which means the holy ones. Without holiness no one will see God the holy ones. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So Satan doesn't want people to keep the commandments of God, nor to have faith in Yeshua. God says his saints, his holy ones, his hagios, keep the commandments of God in the faith of Yeshua. I 